Amen. Well, welcome to the church next door. Good to see you all. You think it's okay on a rainy Sunday night to start out our service with a little bit of fun? Okay. Yeah. I want to see if this brings back some memories for any of you guys, okay? Where's our other? Okay, we've got Autumn versus Jimbo in the limbo. And there goes Ariel and Laura. Last but not least, we got Jimbo. Now let's go lower. There he goes. Wow. Now you be careful, Autumn. You're carrying a baby there. <laughs> Whoa, she's limbo for two. Wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. Jimbo, can you beat it? Jimbo's got limbo. <laughs> Was that legal? I don't know. Was there a bend in the legs? I don't know. I think the pregnant lady takes it. Auto. Good job, Jimbo. How many of you guys have ever played the limbo? All right. Usually when I would do it, I'll show a little bit of my age to the younger people. You older folks will understand. Sometimes we had the roller skates on that had four wheels on them before roller blades. You guys remember those? And there's usually a crowd around there going, how low can you go? How low can you go? And I thought about that game as I thought about where we're at in the book of Jonah in our series, Reluctant Witness. It's our second message. And I thought, how low can you go is a really great goal for the game of limbo. It's a really bad goal for your life. <laughs> how low can I possibly go? And yet, I think sometimes if we're honest, if we look at our own lives, if we look at the lives of God's children, but especially, I don't want to focus us outward, I want us to look at ourselves. Sometimes, if someone were to look in from the outside, they might think that was what we were after. How, how low can we possibly go? How far can I go into this sinful pattern that I'm in that keeps destroying my life? How many times... Can I turn my back on God? How long can I keep going down this path despite all these consequences that are coming as a result of this sin? If you're like me, when we get into that mode, we're not thinking that way. We're not thinking those thoughts. What we're doing is we're busy justifying the downward spiral we're on. We're rationalizing. We're making excuses. But the average onlooker looking in would say, wow, they really seem bound and determined to see how low they can go. And when we started this series in the book of Jonah last time, chapter 1 really shows us a man that's on that downward spiral. It, his life is taking on that appearance that he's really trying to see how low he can possibly go. You remember God came to him with a clear mission. He said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them because God wanted to save those people in Nineveh. And at that 
point, Jonah was faced with a choice, right? Am I going to obey God or am I going to disobey? And, and Jonah ran away because he hated those Ninevites. He wanted nothing to do with those people. And Warren Wearsby, an old pastor from Chicago, pointed out something really cool that I never noticed before, before I read this. Four times in the first two chapters of Jonah, it talks about Jonah going down. The first time it says when he got the message from the Lord, he went down to Joppa to catch a ship to go the other way. And then he gets on the ship and it says he went down to the inside of the ship. Then the sailors throw him off the ship and it says he went down into the ocean and then it says he went down into the belly of the fish. And Warren Wiersbe had this great quote. So when you turn your back on God, the only direction you can go is down. <laughs> He's on this downward spiral. And then we get to the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. When Jonah finally, finally begins to turn to God. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And one of the things I love about God is you can pray from anywhere if you're his child. I prayed a lot of weird places. I was trying to think through some of them this week. Nothing too extravagant. Some of my stranger ones are like bathroom stalls. You can probably think of your own <laughs> weird places where you've thrown up prayers to God. I've never prayed to God from a fish, okay? Jonah did. And I get there and I really feel like finally he's turning back to the God that he serves. He's a prophet. He should have done this a long time ago. But actually, if you read his prayer in the fish, it indicates that he prayed once before this. Listen to verses 1 and 2. It says, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, In my distress, I called. You notice that's past tense? I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Now, he's in the fish, and he's saying, In the past, I called to the Lord. When was that? That's when the sailors threw him into the ocean, and he's sinking down to the bottom. You talk about one of those prayers when you're in the middle of an emergency, and you're throwing up those dart prayers. This is one of those. Jonah is quickly sinking to the bottom of the ocean, and he called to the Lord. He says, from the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. I try to put myself in Jonah's shoes and think about what all was going on there. And sometimes I think we assume some stuff about this story, like that Jonah knew a fish swallowed him. We're not sure that he knew where he was when he woke up inside that fish. I want you to imagine later on in the chapter, when you read it, it sounds as though he was basically half drowned. And you'll see some of the verses that indicate that. He may very well have passed out before that fish swallowed him. He never mentions the fish in his prayer. If you look at the words he prayed, he never indicates like, hey God, here I am inside this fish. He doesn't mention it. And I just wonder, just go with me on this. If he had passed out on the way down to the bottom of the ocean, try to imagine what that was like waking up inside of a fish. It's pitch black. It stinks like crazy. It's kind of slimy. And I'm thinking, he's wondering, did I find my way to the University of Michigan? 
<laughs> now, if you're a Buckeye fan in here, you're saying, yeah. If you're not a Buckeye fan and you're shaking your head, it's your fault you chose to come to a church where the pastor is a Buckeye. <laughs> no, but seriously, you wake up in there and it, this isn't, I think Pinocchio messes us up a little bit here. It's not like he lights a torch and there's room for a whole boat in here. He's, oh, this is kind of roomy. I, it's pitch black. It's slimy, it stinks, and when I think about it stinking in there, I can never get away from when we did a vacation Bible school at the Heights Church one time. I was orchestrating it with a group of people. It was about Jonah, and there was this room that had white PVC pipes around the ceiling down to the floor that looked like ribs, and we put pink sheets behind those to make it look like the inside of the fish. And some thought this was a tragedy on day three of VBS. I actually think it helped make the experience more realistic. A little girl threw up in there. And we still had two days of vacation Bible school left. I looked at that and I said, I think that makes that experience probably all that more real. Because it's probably pretty nasty inside this fish. Not a place you'd want to be. Chapter 1, verse 17, it said God prepared the fish. That means this fish was specially made for this job. That's about all we know about this fish. We don't know what kind, but I'm imagining when you're in a fish's digestive system, there's not a lot of movement going on. There's not a whole lot you can do. You're kind of stuck. There's no in-fish Wi-Fi internet. You know, there's, there's no Facebook. There's... <laughs> There's no texting. You're just <laughs> sort of, thank you, Ariel. I love, you guys sit up in the front row more often. That makes a pastor feel good. <laughs> She's a plant. How much are we paying you? All right. <laughs> Total stillness. The only movement that's going on is the movement of the fish, right? It's totally outside of Jonah's control. He himself probably can't move at all. And I think about that, a lot of us don't like that place where we're forced to be still, do we? But when I look at the first chapter, which was full of movement, Jonah running away, Jonah catching a boat, Jonah getting thrown in, full of movement, but it was all movement in the wrong direction, right? And I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, man, I got to stay busy. I got to stay busy. And if I'm not staying busy, something is wrong. But sometimes we stay too busy and that's what gets us into trouble. Because you guys remember what Psalm says in 4610, be still and know that I am God. Isaiah 30 verse 15 is a verse that I've been chewing on like crazy this past month. As, as different thoughts try to come in and, and rob my peace, it says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. I hear a lot of be still. I hear a lot of rest. I hear a lot of quietness. And it's very important that as we follow God, we carve out those moments in our lives so that we can hear from him, so that we can cry out to him. And what this chapter shows us is if we're not willing to carve them out ourselves, God's very willing to come along and make sure that we do. And we don't always like how he does that. Will we make the choice or will we force God to make the choice? Stillness is where we find God. Verse 3, Jonah says, To God, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. 
All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. I read that and I say, hey, I thought it was the sailors who, who threw Jonah over, right? But what's going on here? Jonah's admitting that this wasn't just a coincidence. In a backdoor kind of way, he's admitting his sin and admitting that, God, I know this is your hand. You're disciplining me right now. This is not just happenstance. I sinned, and I'm now suffering the consequences as a result of it. You're in control. And I think sometimes it's important in our lives when when the storm hits, when we're sinking in the waves, a lot of us like to rationalize it away, like this is just happenstance, this is just coincidence. And, and I want to be careful because not every trial that comes our way is God's discipline, but I think it's important, like Jonah, to be willing to pause a moment and say, God, is some of this fallout in my life a result of me walking away from you? Is there an area of my life where I've deliberately disobeyed your will? Not always, but sometimes he's trying to get our attention. Are we listening? He says, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. And what I see there is Jonah's finally turning to God instead of running from him. We'll talk about that phrase more because it comes up later. But you want to know how bad it was for Jonah when he was sinking down in that ocean? I'm thinking if, if, if he was like Captain Jack Sparrow, he's on his way to Davy Jones' locker, to put it in Jack Sparrow terms. Listen to verse 5 and 6. It says, The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. His disobedience had taken him to the point where he is nearly dead. Now, when I think about how far he went and how far his disobedience took him, what, I, what my mind goes to is all the moments earlier in the story where he could have stopped his downward descent. He could have, as soon as God came to him and said, I want you to go to Nineveh, he could have said, okay, Lord, I'll go. We wouldn't have this cool book to preach through, but his life would have gone a whole lot easier. He could have, on the 35-mile walk down to where he caught the boat, that's more than a day's journey in that time, more than a day to think about what he's doing. He could have turned around at any point and said, God, I'm disobeying you. I'm sorry. I'm going to Nineveh. I think even on the ship, when the storm came, what would have happened if Jonah had repented and said, God, I'm sorry, I, I'm trying to run away, but I, I'll go now. Could it have been that God would have allowed those sailors back in that situation? But instead, what do you see? You see Jonah, who would rather die in the ocean than obey God. That's how set he was in his disobedience. And then he cries out in the ocean. And finally... Finally, at that low, low place, God saves him. But I wrestle with the question, what if he hadn't cried out to God, even as he sank down in the ocean? What if he hadn't finally turned to God? 
Is it possible that God would have allowed him to drown? Is it possible that God would have just chosen someone else to take his message to Nineveh? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's worth thinking about if we find ourselves sinking in the consequences of our disobedience. When am I going to finally cry out to God to come save me? Now think of us. Are, are we on Jonah's path? You know, are you at the beginning where you know God's will for your life real clearly right now? You know he's leading you in a certain path. Will you just say yes right now? Okay, I'll go, God, because I don't want to go down this whole rabbit trail that, that Jonah experienced. Maybe you received this call and you're just starting down that journey. And you're starting to wrestle with, I don't know if I like this. Maybe, maybe you're on the boat and the storms are coming. Maybe you're sinking in the ocean. When will you cry out to God? But Jonah did pray and God heard him. This is the good news in this passage. Listen to verse six. He says, you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. You brought my life up from the pit. And I'm thinking, minus all the drunkenness in the song, Jonah would probably really like Garth Brooks' song, I Got Friends in Low Places. <laughs> okay, take all the drunkenness away because Jonah had the ultimate friend in low places, right? Jonah could have written that line, I got a friend in low places. And I love that about my God, okay? I hope you do too. Isaiah, God says in chapter 57, verse 15, he says, I live in a high and holy place. And a lot of us stop there when we think of God. And that, that's true. God does live in a high and holy place. He's holy. He's just. But if we stop there, you can leave with the false assumption that God is distant from our lives. He's removed. He's aloof. He's cold. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. Thankfully, that verse goes on. He says, I live in a high and holy place. Listen, but also with him who is contrite. That means him who is broken, sorry, crushed by his sin, and lowly in spirit. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who's contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is not just high and lofty. No matter how low you've gone in your life, if you're broken, if you're contrite and you cry out to him, even if you're at the bottom of the ocean near death, he's there. I love that about my God. That's why Jonah says, you brought my life up from the pit. Kind of like he says, Thank you for, thanks for the lift. <laughs> Thank you, God. Because you see, in all this discipline of Jonah, God loved Jonah. He wanted the best for Jonah's life. He wanted him back on God's mission. He wanted his life to be all that God wanted it to be. And as soon as Jonah cried out, the moment he cried out, God saved him. So some of us need to say, what am I waiting for to cry out to God? Why wait any longer? 
cry out to him. And he says in that verse, my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And that's the second time this has come up in this passage. Obviously, we know the temple is where God lived with the Israelites, right? That's where the people went to worship him. Obviously, Jonah's not going to make it to Jerusalem here. So how do the people that can't make it to the temple back then worship God? Well, once you listen, when Solomon built the temple, King Solomon, he made a provision for those moments when people couldn't be there. 1 Kings 8, 38 through 40, he prayed to God. He said, God, when a prayer is made by any of your people, each one aware of the afflictions of his own heart and spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. He's saying, hey, God, even if they can't make it to this temple, if they just reach out their arms towards you and cry out to you and admit their sin, forgive them. And I can guarantee you when Solomon prayed that, he never imagined a man would, would take him up on that from the bottom of the ocean or from the belly of a fish. But that's what's going on. Jonah's reaching out at this lowest place of his life and God responds with forgiveness. Obviously today we don't turn to a temple, a physical building. We are God's temple if we trust in Jesus. But there are those times where we need to turn back to Jesus and say, I'm sorry for this sin. I'm sorry for this path I've been heading down away from you. Please meet me. I am broken. I am contrite. And he will. Next couple verses as we get ready to wrap up, Jonah learns some important lessons. The first one, he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And what I see Jonah doing here, he's basically saying, God, I've got some things that have become more important in my life than you. One of them was his patriotism. He didn't want to help the Assyrians because his people in his country hated them. So all of a sudden, his country became more important to him than God, what God wanted him to do. His own pride saying, God, I got a better way. He's saying, God, I've got these idols, but I don't want to hold on to them anymore because when you and I do that, when we make anything more important than God and his will in our lives, look what it says. It says, we forfeit the grace that could be theirs. We short circuit the good work that God wants to do in our lives through his grace because we're dead set and holding on to our idols. And I wonder if there are any idols that need to be laid down in this room. Anything in our lives that have become more important, if we're honest, than God and his will. Is it really worth forfeiting the joy and wonder of his grace at work in your life? Is it worth that? He says in verse 9, But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. It doesn't tell us specifically what he vowed to God, but when you read the rest of the book, it's most likely that he said something along the lines of, okay, God, I promise to obey you. I will go to Nineveh and preach to them just as you told me to, because that's what he did. And sometimes when we get to those broken moments and we admit our sin, there are things that we need to vow to God. There, there may be a vow you need to make to God tonight. Say, God, I will, and you fill in the blanks because you know what he's been working on you about. I will do that. Or maybe it's the opposite. He's been working on you about something you need to stop and leave out of your life. And, and you need to go before God and say, in your power, I will not go down this path anymore. Are there any commitments 
that you need to make to God tonight. And when I read that, I hear Jonah holding nothing back anymore. It's total surrender. Okay, God, I know this is going to cost me my ideas, my ways, my plans, but okay. And that's what God's after in the lives of his children is total surrender. Next line, he says, could be the, the theme of the whole book. He says, salvation comes from the Lord. See, as Jonah sank down in that ocean, he knew that God was the only one that could possibly save him. After he tried running, after he tried his own way, after he tried everything else, he finally said, God, you're the only one that can save me. And God did. And I think about why does God do that? If I was God, would I do that? After people spit in my face time and time again, and only when they get to the bottom do they finally say, God, help me. I don't know if I would, but I know God does because the Bible says God is love. God is merciful. God is compassionate. The beginning of verse 9, Jonah promised that he would sacrifice to God with a song of thanksgiving. And I just wonder if just for a moment in your own heart, could you slow down for a minute, stop thinking about anything else, and in your own heart, in your own way, say, thank you, God, for being a God who is mighty to save. Thank you, God, for being merciful, because I've tried so many other things. And if I'm honest, I didn't cry out to you until I was completely desperate. Thank you for listening. Thank you for saving me. Verse 10 says, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah on the dry land. Now you think about the things God's prophet has been through in this book. Okay? Earlier, he was treated like cargo on the ship. They threw him over. Now he's fish vomit. Talk about a low place in his life, but he had brought that on himself because of his own disobedience. But God, in his mercy, his complete mercy, saved Jonah. And we're going to see in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he's still got some messed up motives. He's still got some messed up priorities, a lot like most of us. Even though God saved us, we're not perfect. But God, in his mercy, still chose to use this man. As we close, I just want to think of why a fish it's not the only way God could have saved Jonah. He could have put a plank of wood there. He could have miraculously whooshed him off to shore like he did with Philip in the New Testament, just, just transported him somewhere. I know one reason that I'll share in a second, one, one that I think is great possibility, this first one, is just I believe he wanted Jonah to know where the salvation came from. He didn't want to leave any question that it was him that saved him. But the one I know about, God wanted this miracle to point to a more important one hundreds of years later. It was Jesus that told the nation of Israel they were looking for a sign that he was the one God had promised. And Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man, Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. This whole book is about Jesus. 
And God saw in this story of a prophet going to reach a city that was full of sinners that God loved as pointing towards a Savior that would... Isn't this what Jesus is all about? He left his throne, came to this messed up world full of sinners, grew up as one of us, lived not only around the sin, hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes, but he would eventually take our own sin upon himself and pay for it on the cross. And he was buried. Then he rose again. He says, trust in me and I'll give you forgiveness of your sins. I'll give you that right standing with my father and what's cool to me is that even back in the story of Jonah, as God orchestrated these events, his mind is already on Jesus. And this is going to be something that points to my son. As we close, I just want to ask us, how low do we have to go before we'll humble ourselves and cry out to God? Because he's waiting. He's waiting. Lord, I thank you for Jonah's example. I think if these people in this room are like me, I find encouragement in it that you were so patient with him. God, because I look at my life and I know you've been patient with me. And I know you, you don't give up on your children. And I thank you for that. And I just pray that if there's anybody in this room right now that, that hears about that downward spiral and they say, man, I'm on that. I've been running from God. I've been disobeying. God, help this to be the night where they cry out and say, God, I need you. I need, I need Jesus. I trust in him. But for the first time of the thousand, I, I need you. I need your mercy. I need your grace. Lift my life up from the pit, God. I know that offer is available. God, thank you for being a God of second chances. Lord, help us to turn to you sooner than later. May your spirit lead us to that place of brokenness that leads to restoration. Thank you that you're not just high and lofty, but you're close to the contrite, you're close to the broken. You oppose the proud. If there's any pride in this room that needs broken tonight, I pray that you do it. Humble us so that you can lift us up, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.